Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. Sitting down today, we're doing a Q&A with Kendra Wenzel, head coach and co-founder of Wenzel Coaching. Hey everyone, today we'd like to share a great way for you to enjoy the Fast Talk podcast even more. Join Fast Talk Labs through our free listener membership. You'll enjoy access to our Fast Talk podcast forum, unlock over 45 of Dr. Steven Seiler's lectures and interviews, get our weekly newsletter, and unlock podcast episode transcripts. Listener membership makes the Fast Talk podcast even better. Join today at FastTalkLabs.com. Welcome to the program, Kendra. Thank you. It's great to be here. We also have, of course, Trevor Connor in the studio, and Ryan Kohler is in the studio as well today. Kendra, let's start off. Give us a little bit of a background on your experience as a coach. I raced uh, for about 14 years, a lot of that time with the national team, uh, primarily on the road, uh, did a lot of track, a um, little bit of mountain bike, a little bit of, of cyclocross. Um, from there, I transitioned into coaching and um, work with it. With Wenzel Coaching, we work with all different levels of cyclists, some triathletes, some runners, um, primarily cyclists. Um, I myself work with my my favorite kind of clients to work with are the developing elites. So those those people that are making the jump from, um, you know, developing into maybe uh, national or international competition. Um, most recently, I've been coaching uh, Clara Hansinger, who is our current cyclocross national champion. Perfect. Well, let's dive into some questions, shall we? Um, and and we've got a few right off the top that pertain to the subject of of travel. I'll read the first one. It comes from Steve Herman. He's in Dayton, Ohio. And he writes, I recently took a new job that requires a significant travel schedule. Typically, about once or twice per month, I'll have a two to three day trip, but sometimes I'll do some more. I can control when I travel to some extent, but not completely. So far, I've been planning my workouts around my trips and vice versa, i.e. I'll dig an ATL hole, and that's in quotes, uh, and use the time off the bike while away from home to recover. This can't be optimal. Now that I'm in the off-season, I've been thinking about incorporating running to eventually build up my ability to do high-intensity and or long-duration workouts while traveling. What are your thoughts on that idea? Is there some way to translate work done while running to work done on the bike? And finally, he asks, is there a better way to deal with this? Kendra, I'll, I'll turn this over to you. What are your thoughts on, you know, managing travel and training together and trying to bring those two seamlessly together? Yeah, so we run into this a lot with, with working athletes. I mean, this is just a, a fact of life for, for most people. Um, and for those that have to travel multiple days during the month, um, there, there are different ways to work this in. Uh, you know, the, the way that he's doing it, can work, uh, but the piece that I see that's sort of missing in there is that a lot of times uh, travel is not recovery. That means that you know time on airplanes, generally not recovery. Time in meetings, depending how stressful it is, a lot of times not recovery. Um, a lot of times those outings are also, uh, you know, in, in normal years include a lot of eating and drinking and standing around. Um, so again, not not all particularly recovery. Base. So it would depend a lot on the the makeup of the travel. Um, 
So going into a hole, maybe not always the best idea, um, but you know, again, it just depends on, on, on what uh, is happening during what kind of travel it is. Um, so what I, what I generally would do is arrange it that way sometimes, but also, uh, you know, maybe, yes, maybe head into it a, a little bit in the hole, but um, more so treat it just like um, an easier training day, uh, a less stressful day. Um, and then maybe, yes, maybe they can jump back into training afterward, or maybe they might even need an extra recovery day coming back. To complicate matters, he's talking about incorporating running into things. Have you heard or dealt with this before where somebody's trying to be maybe because it's simpler and they don't have to bring their bike with them to to start take up running while they're traveling because it's a little bit easier to 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 do that um, and then how that translates to the bike this can work pretty well, particularly in the off season, especially if he wants to include a little intensity you know it, it could be a little more complicated maybe maybe if he's racing during the season but you know, it could be a way to to get in the shorter workouts to do, you know, because a lot of times a uh, travel wise is trying to you're trying to stack that in in the morning before you're off to meetings or whatever you got to do and doing something, you know, the, the, the heart and lungs don't really know whether you're running or riding, you know, aerobically, it could be great training, um, you could, you know, do some some interval training within that. But but again, you still need to take into account the recovery component, you know, when is the recovery going to come that that is going to mean maybe you come home from a trip and you still need to recover or this is sort of midweek and the recovering is coming at a different part in the week. Trevor, what, uh, what would you add here about seamlessly or trying to seamlessly integrate travel and training together? Yeah, my biggest thing is don't stress too much, especially if it's just a couple day trips and, and this is less frequent. I do have an athlete I, I coach who travels once or twice per week and we figured out ways to deal with it. So the couple thoughts I have from my experience working with him, one, I get the appeal of, of what he's referring to as the ATL hole, which is to, to hit yourself really hard before you travel. And then if you can't work out for a couple of days, you feel okay with it because your body's, uh, you, you feel like your body's repairing from all that work you did. Kendra, I think you were spot on with saying that, well, you might not actually be recovering on that trip. The other thing to be aware of is if you dig yourself deep into a hole, that can compromise your immune system. And having a compromised immune system and then walking through an, a, an airport and getting on a plane might not produce the results you want. So do be careful about that. If you are going to dig into that hole, make sure you have at least one day to recover before your trip. Running does translate well to cycling. So for a couple of days, I think it's a, a perfectly valid option. I've done it many times myself. With the athlete I coach, he actually just takes his shoes and his, his pedals with him. And it's not as fun as being on his own bike, but quite frequently he he's staying somewhere that has a decent gym bike. He, he puts his uh, pedals on that bike and, and does a workout there. Sometimes we'll just make it easy rides. There are some intensity workouts that we can do that are okay on a, on a gym bike. As strange as it sounds, if we have to do some intensity, I'll have to give them sprint workouts because you're going to get out of the saddle. So having a perfect position on the gym bike isn't going to be as important. Excellent. And Ryan, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to share? Yeah, you know, I fully agree with all the points so far. They're great. I think the, I love the running idea and I think it's a pretty useful uh, activity to bring with you. I think as, as Kendra said, it's, those trips are not always recovery. So 
on the other side of the coin too, it's interesting if you can bring your running shoes with you. You know, if you're if you're in there at meetings all day and or business dinners, things like that, that's a lot of just a lot of stuff going on, and it, and it's sometimes nice, I think, to have something like running as an outlet. So just to get away from that and feel like you're still being active. So I think to support Trevor's note of, yeah, not stressing about it, you can even think of it as just a way to stay physically active and just enjoy moving. Uh, the one cautionary note with that that I'll give to athletes is if you have, you know, a hour, hour and a half ride planned, it's likely not going to mean you should go out and do an hour, hour and a half run, especially if you're not if you don't have that foundation in running. So if this is something new for an athlete, I think just making sure they know that just some general physical activity, a, a 20 or 30 minute jog might be great. So making sure they don't jump in uh, head first with running if they're going to bring this into the plan. Well, let's, let's move on to the next question because it also pertains to travel. So maybe it dovetails nicely with what we've just spoken about. Uh, this one comes from Susan. She's up in Buffalo, New York, and she writes... I have my target race coming up towards the end of August. It's a three-day stage race. I want to do a big training camp before the race, but I was wondering how much rest I need between the end of the camp and the race. The race starts on a Friday, and I'm flying there on the Wednesday night beforehand. Does finishing my camp on the Sunday before give me enough time to recover? Kendra, I'll turn this over to you. I, I guess my first question would be, you know, it's to depend a lot on how big is big, right? And and how much he's been training before that. A, a big training camp right before a race, generally not not ideal in my opinion. I probably would try to push that maybe two or three weeks before, so there's time to have a real rest, uh, get in some peak training going into you know, the big event that, that way you're not taking a risk that maybe if you go overboard or you could even get sick or, um, it's, it's usually just a, a little bit too much that close to the race. If I had to guess, it sounds like the, the use of the word big means they're thinking, Ooh, I can get in one big, big training camp and set myself up great for this trip or this, this big event. However, it doesn't allow for enough time to for for your body to actually benefit from what you did to it during the camp. Do I have that right, guys? Yeah, I think that's great. This is a really timely question too. I, I actually just finished uh, a sizable training camp, and I'm about three weeks out from my main race. And uh, Jenna and I were even talking today about her race that she just did, where she had a pretty massive week uh, the week before. But we spent that final week leading up to the race just really focusing on, on a lot more rest than really what our, our brains tell us. <laughs> they, they want to keep going. So, yeah, this is really timely in the sense that I think I totally agree with what Kendra's saying. It, it's, it's how big is big. And, and that when I read this, it just feels very close. So, yeah, I think encouraging a little bit more time in between allows you to get, get that overload from the camp. And then really give the body that enough time where you feel like, yep, okay, I'm back, and now I can finish getting ready for this race. So remember, if you're beating yourself up with a, a big camp, you're not going to see benefits from it unless you get recovery afterwards to let your body repair and adapt. And 
you know, sometimes you can feel good on a recovery week, but for the most part, if you try to race towards the end or in the middle of a recovery week, you are going to feel lousy. So you don't want your target event to be in that recovery week. You want to have your big week, your recovery week, and then at least a week to just get back to normal training and refine your legs before your event. Unless you just finish the tour and then jump into the Olympics, right? And almost win it, <laughs> yes. Yeah. We can talk about the physiology behind how that was possible at another time. Kendra, now I, I saw a second part of this that I wanted to ask you about, which is they're flying in on the Wednesday night. The race starts, the, I think they said, the Friday morning. What's your feeling about that? I think that's actually pretty doable. I mean, if it's your peak race, your peak, peak race, and you can take off, you know, a lot of times it's just the – the, the reality of what the person has to work with. I remember sending some athletes to nationals in, in at altitude one year and someone said, you need to have them go in, you know, two weeks before. And I was like, great. Yes. You tell that to their boss. So, you know, sometimes you get what you get for if, if Wednesday night is it, then, then make, you know, make, make the most of it by recovering on Thursday, hopefully previewing the course, uh, what, you know, whatever is going to be the biggest course or the prologue or whatever you can see. I probably, I mean, Wednesday is usually pretty safe, right? That that gives you still a Thursday if your flight gets screwed up. Tuesday might be better, but Wednesday works. <laughs> Very good. I, I think this next one actually, in terms of the timing of things, uh, has a little bit of uh, a relationship to what we just spoke about. This one comes from a Lassa in Lillehammer, Norway, and he writes... I'm planning to run a 14-mile running race on Saturday. How many days before the race should I refrain from doing a HIT workout? Can I do one Thursday and then have Friday to recover, or is two days out too close? If two days is too close, can I focus the HIT workout on upper body on Thursday? Will that leave my legs fresh for the race on Saturday? Kendra, I'll start with you on this one. So now we're into running, which is not my my primary expertise. But, you know, when we look at general overall stress to the body, again, you know, the, the answer always, always dep- uh, depends for me is it depends. How big is the race? How often has he tried to do this before? You know, wh- how long does he generally take to recover from a workout like that? And what part of the season is it? Is he feeling, is it like peak training time? He might be able to get away with that. If he does the upper body and leaves the lower body, possibly even possibly even more, or maybe keep it shorter. Or if he's feeling really good and he's continuing to build, you know, maybe he looks at it as a way to train through. Again, it just depends on his personal recovery and and uh, you know how that's been working for him in the past. Ryan, I know you you've worked with a lot of different athletes from a lot of different sports. What do you think? Yeah, I, a lot of the same thoughts that Kendra had too. I, I think there's a lot of it depends in here, and and it just goes back to, you know, if you're if you're a self coached athlete, just knowing your body and knowing what the goal is for this race coming up. If it's if it's not a very high priority race, then sure, maybe you can still keep a hit session in there, go into that race and and have a have a fine day. You know, if you're doing a, a pretty sizable hit workout and this is a pretty key race for you, then uh, yeah, I'd have some questions around that, but. Uh, I think it is just knowing, yeah, knowing yourself and how you recover and what the purpose of this is. And, and yeah, if you're, if you're a coached athlete, just making sure to have that, 
that conversation with your coach to, to go through and see if anything needs to be adjusted. I'll say I, I, I spoke with this athlete, actually, and we, we um, I'm not coaching the, the athlete, but we spoke about this and we decided to bag the run. So the thing I'm going to add to this is when you get to that week before an important race, and I think here we're talking about an important race as opposed to, hey, I race every weekend, what should I do? Because I, I think if you race every weekend, you have to have some weeks where you just say, this week's more about training. I'm going to show up on the weekend not feeling as good as I could. But if you're talking about an important race, I don't think there are set rules. Certainly, this has been my own personal experience of what I've seen with my athletes, which is sometimes, yeah, you can go really hard pretty close up to the event and have great legs. Other times, you need to go really easy for a long time. Uh, before the the legs are there. The guide that I use and the way I explain it to my athletes is you know, talking about, you know those weeks where you went out, you did your intervals, the legs weren't great, and you felt like you kind of had to force it out and push through it, but you felt good because you did it? Like, don't do that three, four days before a key event. That's fine on a training week. But when you're getting ready for a big event, if you go out to do intensity and the legs aren't feeling great and you're feeling like you're forcing it out, don't turn into a recovery ride. Try the next day. Maybe instead of doing three sets, you do two sets because you're a little closer to the event. And the same thing, if you're still feeling like you're forcing it out, don't do it. So I like to get some intensity before an event, a few days before, not the day before, a few days before the event. But I want the legs to feel good. I want it to feel like this is a sharpening up of the legs. And if it feels the opposite, like you're kind of digging out of a hole, you're, you're going to keep yourself in that hole for the event. You don't want to do that. For many years now, Fast Talk has brought you the best of training science. Now, we can help you apply the science you hear on Fast Talk to your own training. Through our new performance center at Fast Talk Laboratories, we offer testing, sports nutrition, coaching help, skills coaching, guided workouts, and sports medicine services. Would you like feedback on your training? Do you need to set more accurate training ranges? Do you have aches and pains you just haven't solved? We could help with all that. Find out more at fasttalklabs.com solutions or email us at coaches at fasttalklabs.com. All right. Let's, uh, let's move on to another question. This one's coming in from David in Carbondale, Colorado. He writes, should I suspend training if I'm feeling exhausted or should I push through with a shorter zone two workout? And basically he's asking, am I negating gains that could be realized by not allowing for adequate, adequate recovery? When I see CTL drop on training peaks, it makes me think I'm losing fitness, but I think that is maybe a flaw with CTL, he asks. Ryan, I'm going to start here with you. Um, what are your thoughts here? There's a, there's there's quite a few things actually to unpack. Yeah. Oh, good old CTL. Yeah, we where, had to get that question, didn't we? Where to begin? <laughs> CTL is such a stressful metric. <laughs> so I'll start with um, the the feeling of exhaustion as I read through this the first thing that comes to mind is just to get that definition of what, what is exhaustion for this athlete? You know, is this where it, the athlete completed a normal couple weeks of training and, and they're, they're sufficiently fatigued, 
and that's their version of exhaustion, or are they truly exhausted where like they can barely walk up the steps? I think that's that's a good discussion to have with the athlete where that will help to inform their upcoming workouts. So yeah, if someone is truly exhausted, their you know their resting heart rate is elevated. You know, if they're glycogen depleted and they just they have these heavy legs and, and maybe mood changes going along with it, then yeah, even a zone two workout, I would not consider that as being a productive workout. And that's how I'd kind of frame it to the athlete: is if we think about that zone two workout now, based on how you're feeling, do you think you would have a productive session? If they can think about it and say yes, okay, well maybe. But in this sort of scenario, I would expect them to kind of lean toward the no and say, yeah, this is probably the case where we need to take more time off. I'm going to leave the CTL discussion to Trevor because I know you're just chomping at the bit for this one. <laughs> oh, boy. Trevor and Kendra. Yeah, Trevor and Kendra, jump yes. in. Um, well, like Ryan said, you know, if the athlete is feeling exhausted, you know, we're sort of able to define exhausted, then I would be hesitant to push through with anything you know, unless, for instance, we have a major rest coming up a day later or something, it might be actually something where we wanted to push through. Are you negating gains? Again, it depends if you're going to get that recovery soon enough. You know, I guess my first thing is always with CTL is, is all the data accurate that that's in there? You know, if I'm seeing CTL drop, I, I first still need to make sure that that all the uh, training is is actually in there and accounted for for its TSS. I don't know. I, I guess I don't I don't panic a lot when I see drops in CTL just because of there there's so many components that that are going into it altogether. Trevor, we're going to be doing an episode on CTL soon, but give us the brief answer here on. I don't want to say necessarily the flaws of CTL, but what are your thoughts here when when this person, David, says, I see CTL drop on training peaks. It makes me think I'm losing fitness. Well, I'm glad you said that about avoiding the word flaw. CTL is a metric. It's, It's a good metric, but it's just a metric. And I think the flaw is not in the metric. The flaw is in... You know, based on the questions we've been getting, and lately we've been getting a lot of questions on this, is there's more and more this belief that CTL is performance. The higher your CTL, the better the rider you are. And that I don't agree with. I think it gives some indicators. I think it can be very valuable. But I don't think it's it correlates quite that well. And And so... I'm actually I'm looking at the CTL graph of an, an athlete that I'm working with who's he's 55. Uh, we peaked his CTL out at 85 or 87 this season. Right now he's down below 70 and he's absolutely flying. He's on the best form he's ever been on because uh, he was comfortable when I said we need to take some breaks and and he mentioned he's like but my CTL is really going to drop and I'm like that's fine you're tired. You've done some good training. Let's let you adapt. And I really appreciate that he was willing to do that because I think that's the danger is everybody looks at their CTL and goes, but if I rest, CTL is going to plummet. CTL plummets fast. You take a rest week, you can drop a lot. And so you see athletes more and more, they get scared to do that and keep training through fatigue to keep that CTL up. And actually their, their performance comes way down. 
So I think it's a useful number, but you have to be able to put that aside and say, it's time for rest. I'm not feeling good. Let's let it come down. And so, again, I'm looking at his graph, and we now have him, uh, like I said, flying, but we took a good two-week rest back in June, and he went all the way down to 65, which I know would flip a lot of athletes out. And one of my favorite stories that he shared with me was last summer he met up with some other masters riders uh and and was out on the roads with them and absolutely ripping their legs off up all these climbs and you know they're basically sitting on his wheel on the flats and they asked him afterwards like man you're really flying what's your ctl right now like 120 he goes no i think i'm like 70 and they would not believe him would not believe him at all it is the next uh, number of reference, I suppose. Re- I don't know if it's replacing FTP, but I, I feel like there's a sense that, it, yeah, the bigger, the better. <laughs> uh, no matter the cost, I guess, or the, no matter what the context is. So, yeah, be great to dig into that metric, uh, what it's good for, what it's not so good for, how to interpret it, how to use it in a future episode coming soon. All right, let's turn our attention to another question. This one has to do with training races. It comes from Amos. He's out in California, and he writes, I'm not a big interval guy. I love to get my intensity through training races. Most weeks, I'll do the group ride on the weekend, a training race on Tuesdays, and another training race on Thursdays when work allows. Is this an effective approach to keep me strong throughout the season and to prepare for my target event? Kendra, uh, again, probably hard to say given we don't know the full context of the story, his season, his age, his experience, all of those things. But is this uh, a little too much or is this maybe spot on for Amos? Well, Amos is in California, so I would guess that he's able to do this relatively early starting in the season. Um, Usually what happens when someone trains this way is they'll get fit pretty quick and then they'll just sort of stay at that level um they could probably have a good you know after six to eight weeks and maybe another four to six weeks of of keeping that up but if there is a target event uh in mind there um it's usually not the most productive way to to form a peak performance that's not to say that you couldn't use components of this within the training um, but I usually like to, you know, use group rides for very specific things. So if that's uh, some race simulation or even challenging them, the person to ride easier on the group ride um, or include some kind of like hill interval within it, uh, you know, the, the, group, the group rides um, and, and training races tend to kind of be the same all the time. So um, this this leads to a lot of plateauing and frustration in my experience, um, but it can be handled differently. Uh, so that's not to say that you can't utilize it. It's just, I wouldn't do it all the time. Trevor, would you agree with that? I know that you do like to incorporate uh, training races into your training regimen now and again. What are, you, what are your thoughts? hundred percent agree. Uh, they are fun. I mean, they have, they have benefits. They're fun and you can go really hard. Uh, uh, my mentor, Glenn Swan, 
basically only trained doing training races. I asked him why, and he said, well, I, I can't push myself as hard in intervals as I can in a training race. That said, he designed the local training races and figured out how to design them, so they really turned into a somewhat structured interval workout just with other people. So they were probably somewhere in between. But you know, my explanation for this, and I'm trying to think of a really short version of this, Chris and I actually recorded a video for the website explaining this whole uh, the, the way our bodies adapt. But it goes back to you need to do damage to your body and then recover and let your body uh, repair and rebuild. And the idea is if you do enough damage, your body's going to hyper uh, compensate and you're going to end up stronger. If you don't do enough damage, your body's going to repair it, but take you right back to where you were. And if you do too much damage, your body's not going to be able to repair effectively and you're going to start pushing that overreach. So the one issue I have with training races, and, and Kendra, you talked just a second ago about how initially you improve really rapidly and then you kind of plateau. This is my explanation for that is when you're doing a training race, you're hitting every energy system. And so you are faced with this conundrum of uh, even though you do a fair amount of damage in the training race, it's, a, in my opinion, a little bit of damage to every energy system. So when you're unfit at the start of the season, that's enough to get the, the super compensation, but quickly it becomes not enough damage. So then you're faced with a scenario of keep going to the training races and not really improve because you're not hitting any energy system hard enough or do so much damage that you hit every energy system enough to force a, a super compensation, but the overall damage to your body is beyond what your body can handle and you're just going to be really fatigued. So that's where I find interval work very valuable because you can very specifically target one or two energy systems, have all the damage be on those one or two energy systems, and continue to, to super compensate even when you're, you're pretty fit. So I personally use a mix of training races and intervals. It's just like Kendra said, go to training races some of the time, but not all the time. Very good. Well, let's move on to a final question on specificity. This question comes from Scott. He's in Greensboro, North Carolina, and he writes, Is there any benefit to doing the long, slow rides at a slow, grinding cadence? I do mine indoors on rollers. My thought process would be that the low cadence, and by that he was referring to 60 RPM or lower, would fatigue the slow twitch muscles quicker, thus recruiting the fast twitch muscles to work sooner. Maybe I'll start with Trevor here. I know uh, we, we've touched upon big gear work in an episode, a great episode with Neil Henderson and others. Uh, what are your thoughts here? Oh boy, I actually wrote a really long answer to this uh, question and I, I didn't have a full answer because all the research that I have read on big gear work tends to be higher intensity. So it's either really short sprint works in enormously big gears or doing either threshold or just sub-threshold work for much shorter periods of time at those lower cadences. I don't think I've ever actually read any research on doing a, a zone one easier style ride at lower cadence. So I, I can't say definitively, here's what's going on with the physiology. Uh, it's just guesswork. I do know a lot of pros like to go out and do these 
five, six hour rides and basically lock it in in a 5312 and uh, just kind of grind out the, the whole ride. I think there's some neuromuscular benefits. I think there's some potential strengthening of those slow twitch muscle fibers that's going to actually prevent you from needing to recruit the fast twitch as, as quickly. And there is the potential, but I can't say definitively, that, that the, the question is spot on. And you do fatigue the slow twitch muscle fibers quicker and, and force those fast twitch muscle fibers to start working aerobically. But don't know. Kendra, do you have any thoughts? Ryan, either you've seen any science on this? I haven't seen the science on it. I'll, I'll just say that I think there are some great positive aspects to it. I like to think of the cadence as a real continuum. And if this is something that an athlete is not very comfortable doing, then potentially a low intensity, low cadence ride over a long period could help them get more comfortable because I do tend to push athletes toward feeling comfortable at that very low end of the cadence range and, and at the very high range. So I think there's something be, to be said for just feeling comfortable within that entire range. I think especially for amateur athletes, it's easy for us to get locked into our kind of preferred cadence range and we sit there all the time. So I can see this as a, as a good way to uh, help them, uh, you know, expand that comfort zone a little bit. I, I actually would agree with Ryan there. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people will get locked into the kind of cadence that feels good to them and being able to to push through or spin through the to get out of the comfort zone is, is part of the challenge. And this particular question, you know, I said long, slow rides at grinding cadence on the, the uh, on the rollers. That's that's a long time on the roll. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what a long time is there. Uh, I, I know that early on in Winslow coaching, we would uh, suggest some some push rides that were, you know, sometimes for hours long. Um, and I, I kind of moved away from that in, in my coaching as we went along and split that more into kind of big gear, little gear work where they would get a challenge even within the same ride to do the higher and lower cadence and maybe even be caught out in terrain where it would not be ideal just to really throw the process at them to, of being challenged. The longer, you know, you, you get you get better at what you practice, right? The, most of the time, I see way, way too many people that are slogging around in lower cadence who probably could help themselves in their racing better by learning to ride at, at a higher cadence. Um, so I would tend to want to challenge them more, more with the higher cadence work. Uh, and and for some, you know, that that riding for for hours at the lowest 60 RPM could be a uh, a pretty bad recipe for um, knee pain. And you have a, you have a good point. Rollers are hard enough. That's a to do a long slow ride on rollers. That's that's a tough day. Throwing the low cadence. I, I just want to know what this person like. Are they watching Polly Shore movies just to finish themselves off? <laughs> wow, Polly Shore movies. It was how many were there? Was there more than one? If there was even one, it was too many. <laughs> if there was even one. That's a good point, yes. If there was even one. He made a cameo once, and it was terrible. Well, on that note, I, we've wrapped up a Q&A episode. Thank you, Kendra. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you. It was really fun. Glad you could join us. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts, and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. 
Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Kendra Wenzel, Ryan Kohler, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.